On today's show, we're joined by special guest, the television historian Gary Edgerton, for a discussion about the work of documentary filmmaker Ken Burns, including Burns' most recent project, The Vietnam War. That's all coming up next. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh, yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Hello out there in podcast land and welcome to this edition of Inside the Box. I'm Andrew Salvati. Stephen Jonathan will be back with us again in two weeks. But today I'm joined in the studio by a very special guest, Dr. Gary R. Edgerton, who joins us by phone to talk about the documentary filmmaker Ken Burns and his newest project, The Vietnam War. Dr. Edgerton, welcome to the show. Oh, glad to be here, Andrew. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Edgerton, you are currently professor in the College of Communication at Butler University. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I am a professor of creative media and entertainment. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. And you've also written and edited a number of books on television history and television programs over the years, including one that we've cited quite a number of times on this program, which is the Columbia History of American Television. Uh, You've also written what was perhaps the first book-length analysis of Ken Burns and his work, which was Ken Burns' America, published by Palgrave in 2001. And also, just full disclosure for our audience, you are also uh, one of my committee members on my dissertation committee. So I just want to get that out there. And Gary, I'm going to assure you that you have drafts coming your way soon. (laughs) Very good. But before we get into our discussion of Ken Burns, Gary, I was wondering if you could tell us how, as an academic, you first came to study uh, media and television history. Uh, how did you get drawn into the subject? Well, I mean, my uh, I would go back to being a graduate student and um, in the, the uh, choices that I made when I got into my doctoral program in terms of methodology was historical methods. And in fact, I took it, I got my PhD at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and I took my methods courses uh, in the history department there. So I've always throughout my um, I, you know, I've done a, a variety of different kinds of analyses, um, but I consistently have been a media historian and critic, and I've always been interested in the documentary. And the my interest in Ken Burns, you know, really began um, with his earliest films. Uh, we're close to the same age, and I connected very quickly with the subjects he was selecting, and also I recognized in the way that he put together the films, the techniques that he was using were not techniques that he invented, but he put them together in a wholly uh, different kind of way where, uh, you know, the, the, um, the synthesis, the chemistry that he did it was um, was unique, and, and um, uh, so I was always attracted to his work, uh, both for the quality of the filmmaking, but also for the history. Okay, so it sounds like as a researcher, as an academic, you really kind of took up the uh, the uh, the perspective of interdisciplinarity 
um, to use that that buzzword. And it sounds like you also saw a similar interdisciplinarity in the work of Ken Burns. Is that accurate? Yeah, and I, and I would think anyone, because my PhD, uh, my doctorate is in communication. Communication by its very nature is interdisciplinary. And, and uh, in that way, I mean, that's what attracted me. My degrees as an undergraduate were in history and English, uh, very, you know, traditional humanities or depending on your approach to history, social science uh, disciplines. Uh, but what I liked about communication is that you could um, get into a variety of different perspectives, and they all worked. In that way, um, you know, communication is really a melding of a lot of different fields, and it's just really come into its own legitimacy in the last generation or two. Can you remember uh, the first uh, Ken Burns film that you saw, or at least the first one that sort of inspired you? Yeah, well, the first you? one that I had the strongest uh, imp- imprint was uh, the Huey Long uh, documentary, which I think was his fourth film, because it made it into theaters. Okay. Uh, and then after seeing that, I went back and saw The Brooklyn Bridge and then read David McCullough's uh, book of the Brooklyn Bridge, which was the inspiration for the film, and the film is an adaptation of. I, I grew up in um, Western Massachusetts in the Berkshires, uh, where uh, close to uh, where you know one of the last remaining um, Shaker colonies, and it's now sort of a a historical museum is. And his second film was on the Shakers. And and um, uh, so I I started there, and so I knew I knew of him very well before the Civil War, and of course, uh, when the Civil War hit, it not only changed his life, uh, but also changed the place of documentary and documentary histories. I think within the culture. Yeah, I mean, it seems like from what I've read of what Ken Burns has written about that experience. It's kind of that overnight success that wasn't really an overnight success, right? I mean, you mentioned Huey Long, which I believe came out in the early 80s. but um, So you can really count yourself among the pre-Civil War Ken Burns fans. Yeah, well, I, you know, when I wrote the book, um, he has all of his papers, and they've been down, down there for a while at the Wilson Library, the, the uh, folk, folk life uh, library down at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and you know, and I went through all of his films up to that point. And when my book came out, Jazz just came out, so it was at that pivot point within his career. But going through the Brooklyn Bridge, which was his first film, and it was 59 minutes long, it literally took him as long to do the Brooklyn Bridge in terms of preparation, fundraising, shooting, and all of that, as it took him to do the Civil War which was a mammoth undertaking unto itself. But just uh, to be able to get off the ground, it was it's, his career is really improbable in the sense that he's had this level of success making historical documentaries. Yeah, now in your book, Ken Burns' America, you described Burns as uh, arguably the most recognizable and influential historian of his generation. Uh, what do you think is the significance of that, that the most influential historian today works in the field of popular media? Yeah, I, I think it's a reflection of where we are, and especially in, in 21st century America, that, you know, what literacy used to be defined as is just, um, 
you know, reading and writing, and and now the electronic media are so much more important than ever that I, you know, I think it's unfortunate, and I, I and it isn't as as much as controversial as it was when the Civil War came out. One of the most interesting things about his career is that. Um, you know, it was his eighth film, and the previous seven films, uh, any review I've ever saw, and he, they were pretty well reviewed, not only in in uh, the popular press, but also in mainstream historical journals. They were raves for every one of his uh, films, and in fact, he won the the uh, Eric Barnow Award from the Organization of American Historians twice for, for his films. But when the Civil War hit, and it became so popular, then he became a lightning rod and a controversial figure because I think mainstream professional historians saw that he was, in a sense, stealing their thunder and also interpreting things differently than them, that he's a popular historian, so you know most of his films he sees through the lens of the present day. Presentism is something he embraces, which, as you know, uh, is something that is a cardinal sin for a right. professional traditional historian. So, you know, there, there, there was a certain amount of tension, especially throughout the 1990s. To Ken's credit, he would attend... Uh, the American Historical Association, OAH, and, you know, and engage with scholars. He was interviewed numbers of times, but also attended their conferences and showed his films and talked, you know, and, and listened to their concerns and all of that. But I think what he's able to do in his career was he was able to establish a place for popular history alongside professional history and ironically, a lot of the um, traditional historians who uh, who criticized him uh, that he either through appearing in his films or in other films uh, certainly have gotten wider readerships because what what the uh, you know the artistic approach, the popular approach to history has done is open up uh, history in general to a much wider audience. Sure, I mean uh, he certainly doesn't shrink from uh, from the, the the barbs or the criticisms of uh, professional historians. Uh, if I remember correctly, there was a, even a book of uh, of essays published right after the Civil War exactly. um, by, this, this, by, by historians and. Yeah. He, Ken Burns, uh, and I believe one of his writers actually contributed to that book. Yeah, um, yeah Bur Burns gave a rebuttal at the end, and, and right. I think, you know, I read it when it first came out, so it's been a while, but um, maybe Jeff Ward, who also, you know, is the longtime uh, scriptwriter uh, for Burns, along with one or two others, uh, but I think he also contributed a piece to basically lay out the case and explain that they weren't trying to take over uh, history, but they were simply trying to cut a space for public history, for more popular history. Uh, and, uh, you know, certainly... It's not just him that that we've had an entire generation of of uh, people who have done history in in ways other than just writing and and in that way I think uh, history writ large is better for it. 
Sure. And as you say, Ken Burns is more interested in storytelling rather than, I think as you phrase it, a kind of fundamentalist interest in historical accuracy. Yeah, and I, I was on a panel with him at the American Historical Association in 1998 that the film Thomas Jefferson came out. And I, and I asked him, because he had always said, um, you know, I am a professional storyteller, but I'm an amateur historian. And, um, you know, and, and I asked him the question, well, I guess you are an amateur historian in the sense that you... Um, you know, have don't have formal training in it. On the other hand, the amount of work you've done and the way you've gone about it and everything, you've at least accomplished what one would accomplish in doing a dissertation. And he admitted in that conversation, he said, "Yeah, you know that I I I say this, um, you know, to to sort of." Uh, secure myself a little bit of armor, you know, <laughs> right. it, it, with, with that, that the, I, I was in on another panel on the American Historical Association, oh, maybe 10 years later, and I was surprised for, the panel was revisiting the Civil War, and I did a presentation on the Civil War, and, and again, there was, and I thought we had beyond that. And most of the, it, it was a packed room, and most of the people, it was a really good conversation. But one of the one of the historians at the end started to go through the litany of all of the historical inaccuracies that are in the Civil War. Yeah. And, and, you know, that there, uh, I think you could do, you can do that with books for sure, too. Sure. But, the, but the whole point is, when you look at uh documentaries, too often I think the trap for professional historians is they become historian cops, <laughs> and instead of trying to um, see the benefit and also critique what are the shortcomings of what is electronic history, they seem fixated, almost obsessed with, uh, you know, that uniform is the wrong uniform. It wasn't even you know, that army that was in that battle, you know, the the level of minutia that it goes to. And um, he's a storyteller, so there's a certain amount of poetic license that goes on in the films that he creates. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about the public benefit of Burns's films. Um, what kind of message do you think, uh, or should we take away from his films? What does Ken Burns want to instruct us? What should we learn from his films as as American citizens? Well, I, I think in some way, I think I would answer that two ways. Um, you know, it's just my my opinion that I I think I think he he is a a man out of time, in the sense that his generation of filmmakers and documentary filmmakers, you know, really are you know looking at um, the diversity of. Um, America, but usually from the from a variety of of minority perspectives, uh, whether it be race, gender, ethnicity, class, geographic location, um, and he is a, he is steadfast a majoritarian in the sense that the topics he chooses, and he still I think firmly believes, um, uh, you know, somewhat uh, I, idealistically that. Um, and that way he's a liberal pluralist, that America still, um, all of us, to cut a space where everyone can coexist. 
and we are we are in a a particularly hyper partisan time now where um that might be out of fashion but i think he's one of the few filmmakers who makes the point um you know he really uh, you know, I, I'm thinking of uh, one quote that he has where he says that my audience is everybody who calls himself an American. He's he's really trying to, at a time when the media culture is so segmented and people are going to, to identify, and I always say even scholars like us, you know, really write for a scholarly audience, he is still a filmmaker who is trying to reach as many people as possible, and especially as many Americans as possible, and tell a story uh, that he aspires to tell a story that they all can relate to. I think that's a good segue to uh, his current or upcoming work, The Vietnam War, which has been quite a polarizing uh, time in America. In many ways, we are uh, still going through the consequences of of that really contentious moment uh, in American history. Uh, now you've screened the uh, upcoming series. I, I think that's that can be public information. Uh, not sure, but um, right. how, how does Burns draw a liberal, pluralist, or majoritarian story out of something that's been so contentious uh, in American memory? Well, I mean, you know, who is what he does is he creates. Space. I think he goes beyond America here, and I think that's one of the the strengths of this documentary is that the um, the uh, who is represented, you know, this as is the case. His style is well known to people, uh, and he, you know, what he typically has is lots of witnesses. So he has witnesses um, uh, of combatants, uh, Americans who were in Vietnam in the early years, the early '60s, in the mid '60s, the late '60s, uh, politicians. Uh, but he also has uh, anti-war activists, and um, in a sense, too, I would say the other thing besides liberal pluralism, he tends to think of documentaries almost in therapeutic terms. That you know what you'll hear, you know, he'll probably be all over the media in the next um, you know month as sure. the film comes out. In fact, I'm going to go up and see him up in Chicago. Um, next week, but he, you know, one of the goals he always talks about is uh, is creating a conversation so there can be some healing, some reconciliation going on. And what he tries to do, I think, in the telling of the story of the Vietnam War, which he has done with his other documentaries, is to get people from all walks of life, mostly from the bottom up, people who we have never heard of before, um, or a restricted audience have heard of from some authors and and well-known people like LBJ and and Nixon and and JFK and others do make appearances in it. But what he gets tries to do is reflect a wide spectrum of witnesses who are white and black, who are from rural America as well as urban America, who are officers as well as grunts uh, in Vietnam. And in that way, what he's, you know, as a good liberal pluralist would do is to try and reflect the um, the entire spectrum of the American population or close to it 
you know, uh, as a way of, of, you know, ultimately all of his films lead to sort of a, a maturitarian message of we all pulling together at the end. While, as you know, lots of films that we see, and especially lots of documentaries, uh, portray us as a country coming apart at the seams. Sure, sure. Now, I haven't seen the film yet. Uh, I will be eagerly tuning in uh, to PBS when it comes out. Um, But I was sort of struck in some of the promotional materials that I've read that uh, Burns is including also enemy combatants, to to use that that kind of current phrase. Uh, He's uh, counting among his witnesses... Uh, and interviewees, uh, former Viet Cong guerrillas, which, uh, now correct me if I'm wrong here, I don't remember in Burns's films like The War, for instance, any uh, enemy or even any allied voices, no one from uh, England or France or Russia or Germany or Japan, uh, to my knowledge, uh, was included in The War, his uh, documentary about World War II. Exactly, yeah. And in fact, he had to be convinced of this. Because at first he was, you know, talking about creating a film for an American audience, and it was his, um, you know, his co-director Lynn Novick and, um, uh, you know, his co-producer Sarah Botstein, who, you know, over time he warmed up to the idea, and what they did is they hired a Vietnamese co-producer, Ho Dang Ho, who... um, you know, was on the ground with them. They went to Vietnam for a couple months, did advanced research, and and um, tracked down people. That's what makes the film so rich, in the sense that the um, you know, as with all of his films, there are a number of witnesses who who um, uh, uh, stick out, and we develop re- parasocial relationships through them throughout all of the various episodes. Uh, but what what is really uh, nice and effective and informative uh, about this film, too, is that you have um, North Vietnamese regulars, you have Viet Cong, uh, you have uh, civilians, uh, you know, and you learn things that you just don't, you wouldn't know. Uh, I lived through Vietnam, and, and uh, you know, a lot of, I would say the first episode, which laid pipe, laid the groundwork, to me was the least, at least engaging one, because I knew a lot of that information, but I understand that, that uh, people, people won't necessarily, uh, you know, who, who didn't live through it, who, who are younger. Uh, but the, the, you know, what you find out, there are admissions from one Viet Cong that um, they, they committed a massacre that was worse than Mai Lai. You know, in Mai Lai, uh, yeah. 400 defenseless old men, women, and children uh, were, just, were just killed. Uh, that you, you uh, hear personal accounts of, of uh, people, you know, Viet Cong, talking about their comrades getting killed and, you know, and it's, it's the same poignancy that you have with the Americans. So what you have is this nice point, counterpoint or maybe a more accurate metaphor is you have the Americans and then you have their Vietnamese doppelganger uh-huh. where you can see that the war was brutal on both sides. It was intense, that it changed the culture and the lives in, in both areas. Uh, 
one of the revelations to me was, you know, we lost 58,000 Americans uh, who died, and there were other, yeah. a couple hundred thousand others who were wounded. But the uh, Vietnam, north and south, has a population of 30 million at the time, and they lost 3 million. Yeah, so 10%, 10% of the population of combatants and civilians there, because, of course, that's where the conflict occurred was there. Uh, but you really get a sense not only from the perspective, it, it expands. It's still an American film made by American filmmakers, but it expands the purview of it, too, and creates a space for the Vietnamese and the film is much better off uh, because of it. Now, Ken Burns attributed some of the popularity of the Civil War in 1990 to a general sense that Americans thirsted for more information about the Civil War, this part of their history and their collective memory that hadn't been really focused on that much in in popular media. Um, Do you think the same thing is true for Vietnam in this moment, that uh, there's a thirst out there, perhaps an unknown thirst for information about this war that, to say again, we're still still struggling with the impact and the consequences of? Yeah, I mean, one of the main themes of the film, too, is that the partisanship that was created because of Vietnam, um, the seeds of what we have today of red red state, blue state America was really there. I, you know, I, I think a couple of things that, that um, uh, difficult, painful issues in our personal lives and in our social public lives are, are things that people don't embrace immediately. And we've got, you know, at the very end of the Vietnam War, never mind the beginning, we're now at least 40 years away and when we're talking the beginning, we're 50 to 55 years away. So there's a certain amount of distance. Also, to you know, my understanding, what I learned from the documentary, that two-thirds of the Americans who served in Vietnam are now dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what you're getting is it, it is time to do it simply in the sense to have the witnesses available to be able to reflect back upon what they've learned and how they make sense of that whole experience. But yes, you know, probably we have enough distance and, you know, being a, being a popular historian too, there are, you know, echoes of Afghanistan and Iraq. There's echoes of, um, you know, one of the, the, revelations that historians know, but the, um, you know, but the general population, I'm sure, will come, is that the, 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 uh, the Nixon campaign in the 1968 election actually reached out to the South Vietnamese uh, government who were going to the Paris peace talks, uh, but convinced them that they would give them special treatment and everything, but convince them to not go until the election was over. Yeah. Uh, because Humphrey was uh, closing the gap on, on Nixon, but you have the, you know, you have a, a, a um, uh, an election going on where, where one of the candidates is reaching out to a foreign government yeah. in terms of that. So there were all kinds of echoes that are in this film that um, are relevant when you're going back to the Vietnam War, but also people will recognize and go, 
um, uh, it's not the same things that are happening now, but there right. certainly are echoes uh, to the kinds of things that are happening now. That being said, and not to be a downer, uh, is there a possibility that this new film could open up new wounds? I don't. I um, I would be surprised in the sense that it's uh, we've uh, you know that the the wounds that are there aren't going away, mm-hmm. but I don't know necessarily whether they would get any worse. You know, I'm not convinced of the talking cure that we have conversations and all of a sudden things get better because we talk them, talk about them, uh, you know, uh, across the way, but, uh, it can certainly do that, but I don't know. I think it's, um, uh, I don't think it will make things worse. I think the way that he approaches things to, you know, he, t- in being a liberal pluralist, uh, you know, he, he, in an interview that I did with him way back when, he talked about um, the fact that um, in the Civil War, people, you know, some people in the audience saw him as a Southern uh, sympathizer, and others, right. and the people down South saw, some percentage of the audience saw him as a, uh, pro-union trying to uh, put the thumb on the South. And, and I think the same thing here, the mirror is going to be, people are going to bring what whoever they are to the image, but it isn't a, um, a as all of his documentaries are, it isn't a, uh, the kind of, of, of work that will um, agitate I don't think it's directed that way, that I think it is because of its aspirations to be therapeutic, because of its aspirations to cut a space for everyone to have a voice, um, uh, that I think there might be some controversy related to it, but I just don't think it's that. You know, as a a, uh, uh, contrast with a Michael Moore film, Right, which is right. much more in your face and trying to provoke. He's a different type of filmmaker altogether. That Ken Burns has a very clear. Uh, once you study him, he has a very clear point of view. He is, um, you know, he's socially liberal, but he's also conservative when it comes to the traditions and the institutions of the country. Uh, but he stays behind the camera, and you can only get his point of view, you know, in, in sort of uh, looking at the the agenda he sets, the way he uses his camera, the way things are edited, but it's much more subtle and nuanced. All right, shifting gears uh, just briefly to uh, what you just brought up, which is the editing. Uh, this being a uh, television history podcast, I'm wondering whether... His subject for this documentary, the Vietnam War, which we remember as America's first television war, if the inclusion of the televisual record or the television archive from this war uh, impacts his uh, quite well-known aesthetic, the Ken Burns aesthetic, which is usually associated with uh, photography and the slow zoom and pan across photography at all. And I'm just wondering if, you know, I, I don't really recall that any of his previous films make use of television as a source. Uh, does that impact uh, this film at all? 
it, it you know it certainly and film too because there were lots of 16 millimeter sure. film that was shot on location in Vietnam. You know he has used film before. There were film in the war. Yes. Yes. The 2007 and all of that. That the I actually before I saw this I, I talked to some my critic friends who had her, you know, just through the grapevine and everything, that there were great technical innovations here. And, uh, and you know, in knowing Burns very well, I think it, it, it is very well done, you know, that there are some animated maps. Uh, there are, you know, what what is here is... Um, uh, he always uses period music, and, and you know, and the aesthetic of that before was because all the music was in the public domain. Mm-hmm. And here, I mean, the 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 use of rock and roll, and and uh, you know, rock and roll was really the soundtrack of the Vietnam War. Uh, is is used effectively throughout, and um, uh. But the I, I don't know it expands his style just a little bit, but the whole idea of having a narration. Peter Coyote is again uh, the actor is okay. again his narrator here to have a chorus of voices of you know reading from uh, diaries and and that. But what they also have is really great is real to real tapes. Uh, from soldiers sending back, you know, they not only wrote letters, but did that. And we have presidential tapes where we hear, we hear Dick Nixon lying to LBJ and, and LBJ is pretty duplicitous too, you know, in coming across here. Uh, But you really, you can see LBJ, for example, going on TV and telling the American public that we are winning and then you can hear him talk to uh, Robert McNamara afterwards simultaneously in recorded phone conversations where uh, they talk about we're in this morass and how are we going to get out. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, the, so I don't remember, uh, you know, there is access to primary source material. I don't remember having presidential uh, insight in his other yeah. films like this. But I, but I see it more as an experience expansion of his very well-known style than, you know, because there still is the re-photographing techniques sure. and, that are used. Yeah, I mean, we've all seen some of the, uh, some uh, horrifying uh, photography that came out of the uh, Vietnam War, so I'm sure that'll be included as well. Yeah, I mean, w- what's really nice is those iconic images, too. I, I would say, say um, this, Andrew, that the, you know, the, the, Image, say, for instance, off the top of my head, the burning monk, or yes. the image of... I was thinking um, of the young girl who is yeah, uh, completely Ho- naked. Uh, running naked Napalm. down right. the road, and, um, uh, you know, of the general um, shooting the captured Viet Cong in the head, you yes. know, and just before that, the, that what is really good is he also has um, filmed footage, so you sort of get the five minutes before these iconic images and say for instance with um with uh kim hook running down the road the the young girl and in fact i think she appears as a adult afterwards mm-hmm. but there but it's like five or ten minutes before and we're with the army in that particular village and then they see then we see the planes coming down and you know there's a talk i think 
they're talking about, boy, I hope it isn't friendly fire, and you see him drop the napalm, and then all of a sudden you see these civilians run down the road, and then you recognize one of them as being this little girl, and then, of course, there's a freeze frame to the iconic photograph, but it but it puts it in a broader kind of context for, and the same thing with the with the general who shoots the VC, um, that uh, you can see them, they captured this guy, you know, they're sort of uh, talking around, deciding what to do. The general gives uh, one of his underlings the order to assassinate the, the VC. The the soldier doesn't want to do it, you know, that he can't, uh, he doesn't want to kill someone as yeah. as baldly as that. So the general goes and takes out his own uh, revolver and shoots him. So so it, these iconic photographs come to life in an even broader sense by the research they've done, and they put it in a broader context of, uh, of what happened. Wow, wow. And this is what I find so fascinating and even, you know, encouraging about uh, Burns' films is that even though he's majoritarian and liberal pluralist, it's not necessarily in a jingoistic or flag-waving sort of way. Uh, he really uh, has us think about uh, morally ambiguous and, and difficult issues that are part of the American experience. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people, I, I think people see the the liberal pluralist as being nostalgic and idealistic, you know, to a degree. But who knows, you know, that the uh, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, different perspectives go in and out of fashion. I, I think it's unfair when, when people present what he presents as just being uh, through rose-colored glasses because all of his films... Uh, give the yin and the yang that mm-hmm. you you see criticisms as well. I mean, ultimately, he uh, you know after laying it out, he he aspires to um, you know America uh, finding a way to learn from it and improve. Uh, you know, he still has strongly in his idea the ideal of what America can be even though it might be uh, wishful. In, in, um, but I think that wishfulness uh, comes with caveats in his films, that, it's, that darkness is certainly a part of what he presents. Yeah, yeah. Some of it is very difficult to watch uh, in all of his movies. I was just recently watching The War, um, and there's a lot in it that's very difficult, but a lot in it that, it is, uh, that is quite beautiful as well. Yeah, and I mean, you see here, you develop really strong relationships, personal, parasocial relationships with some of these characters. And some of them are gone. You know, that there's right. one they focus on is a 19-year-old boy, and he is bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and, you know, he wants to sign up, and it's the early 1960s, and he wants to stop the spread of communism and all of that. And who who are the people who are interviewed is his mother and his sister, who are left afterwards, and tragically, he gets killed, like, when he's 21 or something like that. Uh, but he he is threaded through three or four episodes so you really get to know him uh as a character within this story he's not the only one where that's the case that there's a army doctor who um 
you know, was in a helicopter that crashed. He was the only one who survived, and he was in the Hanoi Hilton for six years. And his wife, in fact, became an anti-war protester to help bring prisoners back home. And, and um, you know, you follow him throughout this ordeal, and you also get to know his wife, and then they come home and... And, you know, he finally comes home, 72, 73, when, when prisoners are coming home. Uh, and then you find out afterwards, because the war changed them both, that they ended up getting divorced. Oh, and, wow. uh, you know, so it's very, it, it's a very human, complex kind of portrait that, that the film uh, delivers to us. Wow. Well, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um... Uh, just one final question, though, uh, Dr. Edgerton, for those in our audience who may not have ever watched a Ken Burns film, uh, do you have a favorite, or is there one that you might recommend to a first-timer? Well, I mean, part of it, it, it you know, the interesting thing is that um, our telev- television viewing habits have caught up with Ken Burns. You know, Ken Burns used to be, uh, you know, such a joke that, okay, we're going to have jazz, but you're going to have it in whatever it is, 10 or 11 episodes, and it's going to be over 13 hours. And in a sense, if you look at at Burns now, you really can think of, you know, it's sort of like a season season from a particular series, you know, these miniseries. I still think if people have not seen the Civil War, um, you know, that certainly would be a place to start. If If people only had an hour, or 90 minutes, and they wanted to um, get a taste and to see. There's so many good ones, but I, I, I think the Huey Long film is really well done. It was done in 1984, I think, and it is, I don't know if you've seen the fiction film, the, the, All the King's Men, with, where Broderick Crawford won the Oscar, which is which is a you know within its context is made in the late forties a really good film, but I think uh, Ken Burns' Huey Long is even better. Yeah, I haven't seen and, the fictional and, one, uh, but, uh, the, you know, uh, I but there I could recommend a, a lot. But I would, if if people hadn't seen the Civil War, um, uh, it it is um, it is really well realized. Thanks. Thanks. Um, so is there anything, uh, before we wrap up that, um, you'd like to promote any books coming out, a website that you have? Yeah, well, I mean that the, I've just, um, uh, signed an advanced contract to do a book on Mad Men. Okay. And, and, uh, so I'm looking forward to doing that and I'm joining, um, uh, David B. and Cooley's, um, I don't know if you've seen his website magazine for people interested in television, TV worth watching. Uh, but he invited me to be a regular contributor, and I and what I'm going to be doing is actually I, I've done a couple things as sort of a guest through him, but I um, I'm going to be doing a review of the Vietnam War as my uh, f- first uh, entry in in this capacity, and you know hope to have it done within the the next week or so. So um, those are a couple things I'm working on and, and um, always have a number of irons in the fire. Well, excellent. Our, uh, our listeners, I'm sure, will check that out from you. Uh, my guest this episode has been Dr. Gary Edgerton, television historian and Ken Burns scholar. Dr. Edgerton, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, Andrew, I, I enjoyed it a great deal. and Thank you for inviting me. Thanks so much. 
All right, that's all the time we have for this episode of Inside the Box. I'm Andrew Salvati. Uh, you can find us, as always, on the World Wide Web at tvhistorypod.com. You can find us on Twitter. Our two handles are at standarddef1 and at tvhistorypod. You can also find us on Facebook. So we'll see you there, or we'll see you next time. Steve and Jonathan will be back in the studio. So for me, for the rest of the guys, thanks very much at home for joining us for this episode of Inside the Box. See you around.